Hooray! It's another episode of Dr. Stu's Podcast with me, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. You can reach us at uh, askdrstu at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can like us on iTunes. This is podcast number 122, and I'm here today with my good friend and protege, Bliss Young. Blister, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. I'm, I'm hoping the Kings are still on a winning streak. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, so we always record these podcasts way you know, ahead before they get released. So you know, the current events aren't necessarily current by the time we talk about podcasts. But uh, we must be getting close to Christmas. Yeah. Got your shopping done? No. No, me neither. I'm, I'm a last minute Are you going to be guy. an online shopper this year or are you going to be a, no. uh, you like to go to the, the, the stores? Yeah, but I don't go to the mall. I go to like small, intimate kind of local stores. So, all right, let me, let's get this clear because, because I have to do this and I've never really done, been good at it. Mm-hmm. Do you take a list of everybody that you have to write, buy a gift for? Yes. And then write their name and then how do you decide like who's on the list first of all? Am I on the list? <laughs> yes. Oh, I am. But in past years, is John on the list is producer John on the list. <laughs> in past years, <laughs> I've been so broke; it was really only my children. Yes. Really, no. Even my my mom and my sisters didn't get presents. But this year, I feel like I can I can branch out. Well, a even when you're bit. broke, so that's even when you're broke, you can you can give kisses. Lots of kisses. All right, there we go. <laughs> you can get a kiss. And so John, how do you, how do you decide, like? Like some people, I would like to buy, like my kids or something. I'd like to buy them some clothes, but I don't want anybody really buy. I mean, I can. Some people can buy me shirts because all my shirts are the same size. My dress shirts and color. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> color, yeah, they're all lavender. He likes purple. Yeah, lavender. Yeah, yeah. So don't, if you're gonna buy me a gift, anybody, I don't need another lavender shirt, okay, or tie. No lavender ties or shirts. But I'm just wondering, how do you buy clothes for people? Do you ask them? What size shoes do you wear? But what if you buy them tennis shoes and they don't like them and you just get the return thing? I mean, it's, a, it's really hard for me to decide what to buy people for gifts. I think a lot of people um, give gift cards for that reason, but it's so much more fun to open an actual thoughtful gift, don't you think? Yes. You know who is really good at this? Alex. Alex Evangeliti is the best gift giver. You should ask her. Do they have professional shopping gift giver? Uh, do they have like, could I hire Alex Evangeliti to be my oh, You'll have to call her. She, she might say yes. I think she's too busy, actually. I don't know. She likes shopping a lot. She does? Yeah. Spending other people's money? She used like to. Like an um, interior decorator? Yeah. She she took a client once to go shopping for all the baby stuff. She thought that was fun. Did I was like, charge, you couldn't pay me Did she charge 10% enough. commission? She charged something. <laughs> she used to buy all of the um, staff at the sanctuary, the gifts. She would do all of that. Shopping. Yeah, but that's you know that you know you buy she them what you that. buy them like soap. You know, I don't like soap. Don't get tea. Me soap. You buy them like you know uh, maybe a, maybe a gift card for massage. Yeah. I mean that that's pretty easy. She didn't do that though. She always got something beautiful. And well, I remember I got you guys something really nice once. Tell me. What? Yeah, I went to that that <laughs> people. Oh, what's what that people it? store that? Uh, oh yeah. What's it called? Free people. Free people. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I went in. Someone and I, help you? Yeah, of course. Yeah, you did a really. <laughs> I good walked job. in and I put on my 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 helpless male uh, demeanor. Was it fun? It actually was. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. See. <laughs> Maybe that's what I'll do. I'm going as a help. The helpless male demeanor actually works pretty well for uh, these stores. Uh, how do I get away with it? 
it's harder go. for a woman because women aren't supposed to know more about shopping than men. Yeah, yeah. I'll just be the helpless woman. Oh, I'm getting it's into. I mean, look at I'm getting into gender roles, which we're going to be talking about in a little <laughs> bit here. So we're gonna we're gonna raise some eyebrows and oh, probably get no, some no, not again. Get some hate mail. Oh no. Right. Oh, you know, speaking of speaking of hate mail, I have to say that that I posted an article about about um, an alternative view on vaccine. Uh, I can't remember which vaccine it was, but it was on, I put, posted it on my uh, Dr. Stewart OBGYN Facebook page, and it was about, I think it was about, uh, oh, it was an article written that by a Harvard researcher that said something to the effect that, that unvaccinated people are not a threat to vaccinated people. Oh, yeah, I remember. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, got, I got people unfriending me. Yes, this is the t- this is the time we live in. If you speak your opinion, you're going to lose friends. Yeah, it just happened. And it wasn't even my it wasn't my opinion. I just put it up there because mm-hmm. I put up articles for people to read and to comment on. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like the article, you can comment on that. You don't think that the the Harvard professor knows what she's talking about or whatever else, and give your own per you know your own point of view. But to unfriend somebody because they put up an article that you disagree with are these real friends? No, these are Facebook friends, <laughs> right? Yeah, I know it's crazy. No, and I, again, and my my Doctor Stewart thing. I mean, you know, I have like four, th- four or five thousand uh, followers. I, I hate the word followers because they don't really follow me, and I think it sounds stupid. But but people that you know, when I post something, will go onto their feed and you know to disown me because I posted an, an article on a controversy. And vaccines is one of those things that controversy, as is sort of the, the whole gender issue. Uh, very controversial things, but you know they need to be talked about because otherwise, the majority sit in silence and fear that they can't say what their opinions are. Yeah, I think I think that is happening more often than not. I just post um, funny cat videos. <laughs> no, you post other stuff too. I, I'm just kidding. Yeah, you, you post new uh, new new uh, uh, Facebook pictures. You you post your new profile picture. You change your profile picture. You used to change it all the time. Yeah, and not not lately. No, you because you used to change your hair a lot. Right. <laughs> right. Right. I know that. Yeah. I, I can't change. You know, I can't even call myself salt and pepper anymore. Just salt. You know, on, on, the, on the dating apps and stuff, they yeah. put down salt and pepper. It's like, no, I'm just salt. You're still salt and pepper. Am I? Yeah. Like where? Yeah. So like, on the top. You still have should pepper. I put a lot of salt and little pepper? <laughs> <laughs> a little right. spice? Yeah. Pretty funny. All right. Okay. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, let's see. We got some... Um, it's a slow day for science, so I thought I'd bring up a, a couple slow science articles because... Um, I was reading this one about uh, titled "It Was a uh, Consuming Placenta Has a Little be- has, has Little Benefit for for New Mothers," according to a study. Which study? I, I have no to... idea. Wow, I don't yeah. know any real studies that have been. Well, done it's a yet. study out of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure uh, how <laughs> how much they were paying attention and how many people. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, I know exactly how many people, which is what I'm going to get to, which is oh, why okay. how do you put this is again. This is this is research by press release or headline research, because when I read this article, I said, "Okay, that's interesting," because I sort of recommend placental um, encapsulation to all the clients. They get uh, they get a handout, and you know, I don't have a strong feeling either way. It's certainly not something I ever did until I joined the midwifery world, mm-hmm. but um, I don't see any downside to it, and there th- may be a theoretical benefit to it. So when I saw this headline, I said, "Hmm, what does that mean?" So I. So this is from the research at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. But here's the problem. The new study involves 12 women who took placental capsules and 15 who took placebo. Hey, I could do that study. 
You could easily do that study. Yeah, I should, I should do a study of 12 people. In the weeks after giving birth. So they had 27 people in a study, and, uh-huh. they, and then they get a headline, all right? Which then, of course, gets propagated through social media and yeah. everything else. And then people start asking questions about it. And it's like, it's like well, I, you can ask questions about it, but why? I mean, I have a study of 50, 60 home breach births, which isn't a lot. Right. Okay? And I'm having a time getting it through peer review. Okay. How does anything with 12 people in it get through peer review? That's a very good question. And get published in a journal. Maybe you should write them. I don't have time to do that. <laughs> Maybe you should write them. You don't have time to do it either. <laughs> Producer John has no time at Come all. Come on, John. So do it. John's not going to write them. <laughs> all right. So this was published in an online journal called Women in Birth. All right. Anyway, just to make a long story short, the study provides no clear evidence of benefits compared to placebo, which is the scientific standard. But it does show that the practice is capable of influencing maternal hormone levels, and that could provide some kind of therapeutic effect. Okay, so their whole premise is that it doesn't do anything, and then they say, but it could do something. Right. (laughs) Okay. So wait, so wait, so there's more. Okay, so they conclude with, what we have uncovered are interesting areas for future exploration. I always love studies that say more study is necessary, because basically that's what all studies usually end with because it sounds magnanimous um uh future such as small impacts on hormone levels for women taking placental capsules and small improvements in mood and fatigue in the placenta group which they noticed say that last one one more time okay what we have uncovered are interesting areas for future exploration such as small impacts on hormone levels for women taking placental capsules Mm -hmm. and small improvements in the mood and fatigue in the placental group yeah. So I if there's small improvements in mood and fatigue in their placental group, then why did they say it has little benefit? Not enough benefit for them, well, I guess. I guess. Yeah. But isn't that last statement, isn't, isn't that relevant that there's some small improvement in mood and fatigue? And if so, then the whole point of this paper is silly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It contradicts I think itself. I used to have a thing called silly science or something like that. This one would fall right into that category. On your show, you used to do a little thing. I don't know. We used to do. I, it wasn't called silly. It was called s- stupid science or mm-hmm. something. And it, it, you know, we had. I mean, there's there's twelve women who took placenta capsules. All right. I mean, just uh, th- th- that number is so statistically small. It, it's it's to be irrelevant. Again, in our culture, I think a lot of people are are looking at things so quickly and are not going deep. And if it says study. And a headline to them, that's enough to run with it, pass it around. And it makes, like you were saying, it could make a huge impact just because it's going live on social media. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm crunching that one up and that, that's going in the round file. By the way, I wanted to say yes. while you were on placenta encapsulation, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't widely done here in the States when I had my babies. My last one was born 14 years ago. Um, and I think in the last decade is when it's really gotten more and more popular. I really wish I had some capsules now that I'm becoming premenopausal. I talk to women about the benefits all the time that you can save your capsules for when you go through menopause. Although thinking about keeping them for twenty years seems kind of crazy, but right now I would I would love to. Yeah, you know, and really, them. well, it, it's also I mean there aren't that many that you get. How many do you usually get from sixty a hundred maybe? No, I you know I'd say the lowest is probably around seventy five, and the most is like two fifty. All right, let's say 150 capsules, and how many a day do you normally take if you needed to take them? In the beginning, you would take about six for the first two weeks. 
So that's 14 times 6, that's 84. Mm -hmm. So you've taken basically half your capsules in the first two weeks. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, again, even if you're going through, men but menopause is a process you go through over six months this to a couple of years. This is true, but you can use a tincture ongoingly. A tincture would be an idea because yeah. the tincture would last basically last forever. Yeah. Um, Everybody, do your tinctures. It gets weaker, but do your, do tinctures. Mm -hmm. And 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 is there, a, is there anybody that out there in the world, the commercial world, that's actually collecting placentas or is it because it's ha considered hazardous waste there's no way that people could collect placentas that would be normally be thrown out what they talk about is it's used in cosmetics it's sold and used in cosmetics is that part of the hospital i've never along along with your that. limb along with your dismembered <laughs> limbs and, and other things and yeah. organs they can sell your placenta yeah in asian, well, I guess, I guess asian they cultures they say it's worth its weight in gold so it's you know it's something that's like I mean, rhinoceros horn Sure, <laughs> never compared a placenta to a necessary, but <laughs> okay. Well, moving on. Okay, because we got other other science that we can discuss or ridicule, depending <laughs> on what we want to talk about today. Okay, so here's a in a throwaway journal called OBGYN Management. Uh, there's an article: Should we stop administering the influenza vaccine to pregnant women? Okay, and of course, the author's response, being a member of the American College of OBGYN, is. Of course we should give it. Yes. No, we should not stop doing it. Right. Right. Okay. So I, I took some notes here. Um, and this is what we talked about briefly, I think, in the last podcast, is that my colleagues and I have like 120 years of obstetrical experience. We've never seen anybody who's pregnant get a serious flu that's going to cause them to have death or, you know, miscarriage, lose miscarriage or, or anything like mm -hmm. that. But but there was a recent study out that that defies previous studies that showed that there is an increased risk of miscarriage when people get the flu vaccine two years in a row. All right? So, in other words, if you get the flu vaccine last year and then you're in your first trimester of pregnancy this year and you get the flu vaccine, you have a increased, a seven-fold relative risk of, of, of miscarriage over somebody who didn't get the flu vaccine for two years in a row. And is that something that's disclosed readily. Oh, I'm to, sure not. And I don't know that this study is something that people should react to either. Mm -hmm. I probably think that the risk is low either way. It's just that, like we've talked about many times, like with Tdap or the flu, there's no studies that show that it's safe to give in pregnant women. So yeah. they're empirically giving it for to prevent something that's also rare, except in certain populations. I mean, if you're if you're a malnourished person, if you're living in a third world country, if you're uh, immunosuppressed, I'm not sure that you get vaccines when you're most suppressed anyway, but, but, and you're more susceptible to the getting the flu because you have like maybe a chronic illness like lupus or something. Um, then maybe the vaccines make sense, but to make a broad statement like ACOG always does that all women should get it is always something that just, I still just scratch my head because where are all these terrible women that are getting sick? Where are they? And, and what's the motivation behind actually giving these? Vaccines. Well, I, th I think that the motivation is probably altruistic. It's probably good. It's probably a belief that, that any one woman getting the flu is too much because these people who recommend that don't believe that the flu vaccine carries any risk. But, they're, that, but they have to believe, you know, that's one of those things you have to believe on faith because there's no data to say one way or the other. Well, the flu vaccine in particular is one that really baffles me. Because the actual flu changes so much from season to season yep. that they don't actually know if they're going to give you something that's going to protect you. Oh, and they, you. Hit it, they hit and miss all the time. All the time. And you've got the risks of just, you know, how your body reacts to vaccines in general because there are things that are put in there besides just the virus. 
And then additionally, um, lots of people get sick when they get the the actual um, vaccine. So I, that one just baffles me. I don't really understand the benefits of doing the flu vaccine. Someone informed me because I'm I, I would rather not. Yeah. Well, they basically said that influenza can be a serious life threatening infection, especially in pregnant women and their newborn infants. But again, I just don't know where that comes from. I. I, I guess, what does can be mean? Because anything can be. And how do you define serious and life-threatening? Again, when, when empiric observation tells you that it's, that, yeah, anything can happen, but it's extremely rare. Right. So then you really have to weigh the risks of the, the unknown risks of giving a vaccine. And here's a study that says if you give the vaccine two years in a row, you'd actually do increase the, first, the chance of first, uh, first trimester miscarriage, which... Why would anybody do that? Someone so, was saying recently, we've, as a society, we've, we've become fearful of being sick. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, heard, that the, I heard that the other day, too. Yeah. Was that I, from you? I, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, I'm getting sold. I, I don't know if I said it myself. Um, but what, what I think is interesting is that, you know, a lot of people aren't really understanding that when you become ill. I mean, obviously, there are things that are life-threatening and those things it makes sense to want to protect yourself against. But for things like a cold or a flu or these kinds of things, um, your body develops more immunities. You you want to your body to fight these things because your body gets stronger. So by giving ourselves these crutches, we're actually weakening our immune system. So I think it's really interesting. Yeah, it is. And they say the mechanism by which the, uh, according to this one study, which the, which this this throwaway journal is saying don't, isn't enough to change their recommendation f- to stop giving the flu vaccine. Mm-hmm. But according to the study, they said there that the PH1N1 vaccine, which is the one they're giving this year, I think, seemed to cause at least mild increases in pro-inflammatory cytokines, particularly in pregnant women uh, compared with non-pregnant women. In addition, infection with the PH1N1 virus or vaccination with the PH1N1 vaccine induces an increase in T helper type 1 cells which exert a pro-inflammatory effect. Excessive inflammation, in turn, may cause spontaneous abortion. I know that that's a lot of stuff in the weeds. We're really in the weeds there, but... Inflammation causes... Yeah, and, and so this, the, theoretically, is the reason why it's... But I don't exactly know why two years in a row... One year in a row, the relative risk was only like two. But two years in a row, the relative risk was 7.7. So, but I don't know what 7.7... I, I talk about relative risk. I don't know what the actual risk is. Because there's no numbers in this journal. It's basically reviewing a a study. Uh, I don't really have time, unfortunately, to read all these studies. I got enough stuff going on in my own life. Right. So it's hard. So I have to take these things, but I also want to interpret them for listeners so that they can, if it inspires them, they can do their own research and look this stuff up. Okay, so anyway, that's some more silly science. Uh, I think I have one more, which we talked about briefly, and maybe you, um, without, I don't know if you want to talk about the, the... person that you texted me about yesterday as far as anonymity and stuff like that but mm-hmm. you had just a question mm-hmm. do you want to say what the question was because it really is a general question that a lot of us pr- practitioners come up come across if someone tests positive through a blood test for hsv one in the blood right on a random screen right because she was asymptomatic yes but it was uh it was um, possible that her partner was showing symptoms of an outbreak. 
So another midwife recommended. Um, Which that, is smart. It's a good thing I to do. That I should test it because right. she's 38 weeks pregnant. Um, should, should we be treating that? And you said no. Yeah. And, and um, I still believe that that's no. And I'll tell you why because we'll go through this a little bit. And okay. Again, I don't want to get too far into the weeds with this stuff because it gets yeah, very scientific. This is a pretty well, because lo- one and two can both be outbreaks on the vagina. <laughs> vagina. Yes, yes. <laughs> it isn't like it used to be where two was down low and one was up high. Right, and that I think low. that was where my question came from. So, the prevalent. Uh, okay, so this article again in another in the Throwaway Magazine, OBGYN Management on. Uh, it's called Genital Herpes, Diagnostic and Management Considerations in Pregnant Women. And I, t- I tried to highlight the pearls for you. I tried to read through this article and, and just get the, the things that are, I would, thought my listeners would be most interested in. Uh, the prevalence among women is twice as high among men uh, at 20% versus uh, 11% with HSV2. Okay. It's, so, did you just say that men are higher? No, women are higher. Women are higher. Okay. Okay. So if you drew blood on 100 people, 20% of women and 11% of men would be would test positive for HSV2. Mm-hmm. Um, it says here among people with HSV2 positivity, 87% are not aware that they are infected. Hmm. They've never had an outbreak. Well, they never have one that they can recall having. Uh-huh. doesn't mean they haven't had one. They mm-hmm. might have just thought it was like an ingrown hair or something like that, which, right. you know, in, in a, it wasn't a bad primary outbreak. Um, however, they are at risk for still transmitting it horizontally to their partners. Okay. In the same age group, the prevalence of HSV-1 is 54%. Okay. For both? No, it was... Tw- well, Male it, and female? It was... Uh, they, didn't, they didn't break this one down. Mm, okay. Okay. So it was 20% in HSV2, zero positivity, and 54% in HSV1. Let's just assume that's women because that's sort of what, what our audience is listening for anyway. I don't think there's any former NFL players or <laughs> pro wrestlers listening in on the conversation. Let us know if you're Yeah, if you are, there. send us, askdrstew at gmail.com. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll commend you. All right. So anyway, so it goes on to say, most patients with primary infection develop mild, atypical, or completely asymptomatic presentation and are not diagnosed at the time of HSV acquisition. Mm-hmm. So that's surprising to me because I always uh, I was of the thought that when you get herpes for the first time, it's usually the worst time, right? And you usually know it. But here they're saying that a lot of people get it, and never know it. One, one or, or two, yeah, okay. or one or two, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The rest of this stuff is basically for one or two. Okay. Um, in general, the, pre- the clinical presentation of non-primary infections, a primary infection will be your first one. Right. Non-primaries and everything subsequent is somewhat milder and the rate of complications is lower, which is a no-brainer. That's sort of obvious. Okay. Um, the next thing I underlined here, prodromal symptoms, which are localized irritation, paresthesias, and puritis can precede recurrences, which usually present with fewer lesions and last a shorter time than the primary infection. Recurrent lesions usually heal within five to 10 days. Primary infections can last two weeks or more, mm-hmm. okay, where, they're, where, they're, where you're shedding and they're infectious and they're hurting. Um, here's a little bit on asymptomatic viral shedding, which I also found interesting. Asymptomatic shedding tends to be more frequent and prolonged with primary genital herpes 2, okay? Mm-hmm. So people who have herpes 2 who resolve, 
are more likely to still continue to share the virus, which is war- which may be w- why the concern was so great for herpes 2 and vaginal and delivery. Vaginal delivery and all yeah, that stuff back right. in the 80s when we were we were swabbing a woman's vagina once a week and if they tested positive and they went into labor within 7 days of that positive test they got a C-section. Well, I mean, currently we still say that if you have an outbreak, you have to have a C-section and that you should Right, but the but the routine consider. screening culture right. swabbing was was something that turned out to be not very useful because herpes is shed intermittently and you could put the Q-tip in and for the 3 seconds that the Q-tip is touching the cervix, you you may not be shedding virus, but a minute later you might be and a negative herpes culture doesn't mean you weren't shedding it. So it really didn't do anything, but the but it did sort of show us that the transmission vertically is not that is not that common. When it happens, it's very severe. Right. But it's not that common. If all if if twenty percent of women have HSV two and fifty four percent of HSV one zero positivity, where are all the babies being born with uh, genital herpes or congenital herpes? And you don't see it. So, um, okay. So moving on, uh, there's a whole bunch of statistics here which I called the weeds, and I'm going to stay out of that. Um, a confirmed positive HSV two antibody test indicates anogenital infection, even in a person who lacks genital symptoms. So in other words, what they're saying is, uh, what I got from this article is that you can't get herpes 2 of the mouth. Right. But you can get herpes 1 of both places. Right. Okay. So we, we did you know that? Yes. Okay. Because it would make, it would, it, would, it would seem odd to me. I mean, that if somebody has herpes 2 outbreak and you have oral contact with them, why couldn't you get herpes 2 on your lips? But you can't, apparently. I'm not sure I believe that, but that's what it says. It says, in the absence of all genital or or oral labial symptoms among individuals with positive HSV-1, serologic testing cannot distinguish anogenital from oral labial infection. So, in other words, if you have no symptoms, they can't tell you where the portal of entry was. Right. What that means. They don't know that, okay? So, treating HSV during infection during pregnancy, well, that's pretty, pretty well known and that's pretty universally accepted. Antiviral drugs can reduce signs and symptoms of first or recurrent genital herpes and can be used for daily suppressive therapy to prevent recurrences. Starting at 36 weeks. Well, they're talking about anybody who gets an outbreak during pregnancy mm-hmm. or if you get frequent outbreaks. And I'm going to get into that in a second. It says acyclovir is the least expensive drug, but valcyclovir or valtrex is the most common, con- excuse me, most convenient therapy given its less frequent dosing. Acyclovir and valcyclovir are equally efficacious in treating episodic genital herpes infections. Okay, so I, I usually use Valtrex because it's twice a day, whereas acyclovir or, or, um, is three times a day. Oh, okay. Um, sometimes five times a day, actually, depending on if it's primary or secondary or if it's shingles or what else you've got going on. Okay, so will your patient's infant develop neonatal herpes infection? This is the question that everyone wants to know. Most cases occur in infants born to women who lack a history of genital herpes, right? Because people with genital herpes histories are usually given prophylaxis, and that's the case. So that makes perfect sense. But again, it doesn't tell you how many, how often it happens, and I think it's very rare. Because in all my career, in 35 years of, of obstetrical, of caring for women in the hospital and at home, I, I've never had a case in my own practice. I think I remember one case when I was attending at Cedar sinai here of in the Los baby Angeles, getting. of the baby getting genital yeah. herpes. Mm-hmm. A better answer for that would be to come from a NICU uh, specialist, but I think it's still pr- 
pretty rare, considering the ubiquitousness of of herpes serology testing positive people. Do you think it's um, it's the type of clientele that you're servicing, though? Like in other communities where these women are not getting a lot of prenatal care and are not being tested, that that it happens more frequently. I don't know. I don't know. I, you, we used I to believe that we used so. to believe that herpes was a actually a uh, upper middle class disease. I'm just talking about the babies getting sick. You know, that well, yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah. And again, whenever these articles they talk about these things as being risk or common, they never really give you a number, and it's always sort of I always find that to be a bit perplexing as to. You know, when they say common or can occur, it's like, well, okay, it's what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? The highest risk of transmission in the neonate is in women who acquire genital herpes in a period close to the delivery. So that would be people who get primary herpes while they're pregnant, okay? And that's very high. Neonatal herpes 1 infection also has been reported in neonates born to women with primary herpes 1 oral lesions during pregnancy. Right. 70% of these women had oral clinical symptoms during the peripartum period. Potential mechanisms are exposure to infectious, infected genital secretions, direct maternal hematogenous spread, or oral shedding from close contact, you know, kissing your baby after it's born. So don't really know. Mm -hmm. But clearly, you know, if you have a herpes outbreak, uh, you know, obvious one, then there's certain precautions that everyone will knows what to take. Yeah, because I've heard of babies dying from that. Dying from? Being exposed to someone in their close community who had oral herpes. They were, ex- that the baby was exposed to that. Yeah. Yeah. Where have you heard of that, though? Because I, have you heard of that just by reading? Cause, or do you know from personal experience? It oh, may. She's, she's, it, she's focusing. People, yeah, so I'm. I'm feeling like I had one that was really close, but it may have just been somebody that I read about. Okay. Yeah. Preventing neonatal herpes. There are no prevention strategies for neonatal herpes in the United States, and the incidence of neonatal herpes has not changed in several decades. So, in other words, um, the, all the things we've tried really haven't changed anything. When the partner has herpes, women who have no history of genital herpes who are seronegative for HSV2 should avoid intercourse during the third trimester with a partner known to have genital herpes. Okay? Those who have no history of oral labial herpes or who are seronegative for HSV1 and have a seropositive partner should avoid receptive oral genital contact and genital intercourse. So if your partner has HSV1, no kissing, no oral sex, no genital sex. That's if your partner has HSV2, you can kiss all you want. You can have oral sex, just don't, no intercourse. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't, I don't know that I'd heard that recommendation I, I, before. Some of our listeners are actually writing notes right now, really quickly. Just <laughs> 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 write that down. Can I repeat that? Could you repeat that? No, you could play it back. Okay. <laughs> um, condoms can reduce but not eliminate the risk of HSV transmission. To effectively avoid genital herpes infection, the abstinence is recommended. When the patient has a history of herpes, or actually has herpes, one, monitor women with a mild recurrence of herpes during the first 35 weeks of pregnancy without antiviral treatment. In other words, unless they're symptomatic, but if it's mild, you really don't have to treat them. All right, it's not going to prevent vertical transmission to the baby. So by basically, what we're talking about is trying to avoid a woman getting exposed for the first time while she's pregnant with either. Yes. Right. Or having, or if she has a recurrent outbreak of known, she has her own recurrent outbreak in the last 
you know, within but it's with not ruptured membranes or yeah. in labor. That's right. a problem. We'll get to that. Right. Um, consider antivirals for women with severe symptoms or multiple recurrences. Mm-hmm. So you would treat therapeutically initially for the five to seven days, and then you'd get put them on the prophylactic regimen. Offer women with a history of genital uh, lesions suppressive antiviral therapy at 36 weeks Mm -hmm. until delivery. Mm -hmm. It's great. I mean, that's pretty normal. Antiviral therapy reduced the risk of HSV recurrence at delivery. Uh, Relative risk was 0.28, so it was was great. Yeah. For people that you 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 knew you needed to give it to. Okay. No data are available regarding the effectiveness of this approach to prevention of neonatal herpes and case reports confirm neonatal herpes in infants born to women who receive suppressive therapy at the end of pregnancy. So it's not 100%, but it's still the, it's still the recommendation. When cesarean delivery is warranted for women with active lesions or prodromal symptoms, offer cesarean delivery at the onset of labor or with rupture of membranes. What do you think about when they talk about that you could cover it with something. You heard about that? Well, I think that's foolish because yeah. you're, se- you're shedding virus not just from the area. where You may be shedding it from your cervix as well where you, you can't see. I mean, you know, I know that the people say you, if you have a lesion on the labia and you put a, derm- you know, a dermatoplast or you know, one of those clear things over it, you're going to protect the baby from touching it. But that's probably not the best, the, probably not the only way that babies can get herpes is from direct contact from that. They can get it you know, through a cervix. I mean, if you have it on your outside, you may very well be shedding it on the inside. So, but if we gave a woman true informed consent, like as we were talking oh, about earlier. She, you can't force she, her to have a C-section. Right. Of course not. Okay. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, um, cesarean delivery is not indicated in patients with a history of herpes without clinical recurrence or prodrome at delivery. And as such, women have a very low risk of transmitting the infection to the neonate. That's sort of the conclusion. All I'm gonna, it's my conclusion. <laughs> so in other words, just because a woman has a history of herpes, you know, I don't think that anybody in our sphere are, are telling them they have to have a C-section. But there are still islands out there where doctors say silly things like that. I think what I got most out of that is the uh, abstinence part. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's a new recommendation. In the last month or so. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. All right. So we've got about five minutes. Uh, not as much time as I wanted to, but maybe that's good because... <laughs> I think it is good. Right. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to get into this, this article because I just... I, you know, it's a, it's, we're in a culture war right now. Um, there are people on both sides. There are good people on both sides of the culture war. But sometimes the culture war invades into specialties or areas of our lives where culture war should be secondary to science, not above science. Right, but what happens is it is sometimes invades academia to the point where you end up with really odd recommendations. In other words, recommendations that may benefit one person in a million, and so the nine hundred ninety-nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine people should alter their existence and their standards and their traditions because one person might be affected somewhere down the road. And this is a perfect example of this. This is from the journal Pediatrics, which is a very sort of prestigious pediatric journal. I don't have the article because in order to get the article, you had to pay 25 bucks, and I wasn't going to do that. Mm-hmm. But there was a review of the article in a, in a, in a uh, 
oh god what's it called uh, a, a newspaper it's not a newspaper but it's a what do you call magazines and stuff like that what's that called periodical periodical okay Journal? fine that's a word that's not the word i was looking for but uh, when you talk for two hours it's, you, you run out of things right <laughs> okay called the federalist and a, a, a writer named mary hassan looks at the recommendation by a dr lena nahada who's a pediatric endocrinologist at the highly ranked national nationwide children's hospital in um ohio in columbus ohio okay she writes the medical establishment, this is the, the Federalist author writes, the medical establishment is losing its bearings. Caught in the twilight zone of transgender alter-reality, alt-reality, where hurt feelings matter more than hard science, Americans' pediatricians see a new threat on the horizon. And this new threat is listed in pediatrics by Dr. Lena Nahada as, uh, she sounds the alarm about the gender reveal phenomenon. She warns that a sonogram posted to Facebook or a party to announce the unborn child's sex is a hazard to pediatric health. How so? Yeah. It's even even my friend Bliss is smiling and laughing. John, <laughs> is, just, John is too busy looking at his I don't phone, get but. the pediatric health, but... Okay, well, she goes on. Okay. So, so is the traditional delivery room cry of, it's a girl, or it's a boy. Why, you ask? Yes, I say, ask. Say it again. Why? Why? Because, <laughs> quote... There are scenarios in which a sex assignment may later be questioned or reversed, leading a, to a significant amount of distress, unquote. To the child. To the child. Mm -hmm. 15, 20 years later. Yes. Okay. So. This is a good statistic. How many, how many people want to be reassigned or feel the need to be reassigned? Right. Like what but my question, is my question is, what do parents, if, if, if people were to follow this, guideline what do parents do for the first 15 years of the child's life that's the interesting it's not even interesting okay it's idiot. <laughs> why are you talking about it, it then? it's, idi it's not it, interesting because this kind of idiot idiocy <laughs> is is becoming uh, uh, so prevalent in so many aspects of our lives okay now the the author writes here she write i i thought this was important she writes nahada isn't concerned about blurry sonograms that fail to capture anatomic details She's also not really talking about infants born with atypical genitalia, requiring further tests to determine if a baby is a boy or a girl. She acknowledges that those cases are rare, about one in 5,000 uh, infants. No, Nahada wants parents to embrace a trans-friendly world premised on the idea that regardless of gender assignment at birth, some kids may later identify as the opposite gender. Okay. Okay. So, she says... That the vast majority of cases an infant predicted to be a boy or a girl on prenatal ultrasound will identify that way for life. She parrots the now familiar transgender talking point that sometimes the right gender assignment is actually wrong. Okay, so the question I would ask my friend and colleague Blister is, do we eject or destroy traditions and standards that have existed for generations for something that is, quote, sometimes unquote i think it's unfair to ask me but <laughs> <laughs> you're my you're my protege um, you're the only other person in the room uh, ask john no <laughs> <laughs> um no i mean i think i i'm a little bit more neutral about things than i think you are um in that are you gonna stop saying it's a boy no i i, I i'm <laughs> I'm opening up my mind to imagine what that means. That that's where I come from. I'm like, wow, 
this is really interesting. We've been doing this for so long. This is not an opinion piece. I mean, this is a this is in a pediatric journal, a scientific Do I journal. That that should be scientific. As How does this saying? get through peer review? We're getting back to that PC? question. Yeah, it's yes. PC. I, I, I'm serious. This is not. I mean, she wants to write an opinion piece in the in the New York Times. Fine. Right. But this this is in a this is not a this is a scientific journal. And even if it's an opinion piece in the scientific journal, it still carries with it. How does something like this get in there? She goes on to say, by the way, we should educate obstetricians and the delivery room and newborn nursery staff about the implications of overemphasizing the importance of sex of the infant during pregnancy and after birth. Perhaps instead of, it's a boy, the first proclamation after delivery should be, congratulations, you have a beautiful infant. Right. You're going to start doing that? Um, no, okay. <laughs> I can see by your face. I'm, and for the sake of time, I'm going to answer the question. Physicians, nurses, and staff in general, <laughs> pediatric clinics, as well as teachers and staff at schools, should be aware that gender is just one aspect of a child's identity and not the defining aspect. Particular attention should be given to preferred names and pronouns, okay? Now, a couple things I have to say about that. Um, I'm thinking. I think it's... Well, let me let me say a couple I things. I find it interesting. Interesting is fine. I found it interesting enough to bring right. it to the podcast. Right. I also found it idiotic. And I have to tell you why, okay? You're not going to label the you're not label. You're not going to boys have penises, girls have vaginas, okay? There's male and there's female in all of the species, right? That's just the way it is. What you wanted to assign yourself to be that's something later, but to Ask everybody to be sensitive to something that may never happen in 99% of people and something that may never happen for 15 or 20 years or longer is ludicrous. And part of it comes from a, a, fa- a failure to actually believe in, in like, I, you know, I'm not a biblical sort of a, a biblical person and I'm not somebody who's very religious and I don't, you know, go to the synagogue and I don't do that sort of thing. But there's a quote by G.K. Chesterton, um, that's attributed to him. And it says basically, um, when you stop believing in, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, when you stop believing in God, okay, you, it's not that you believe in nothing, but that you believe in anything. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so if we l- lose track of a, a, you know, the, of a God-based society where Adam and Eve and all that stuff and the male and the female and the whole story of, of, of mankind up until the last decade or so has been male and female, all right? Um, I mean, I know this is absurd, but what if what if uh, one of these congressmen who's accused of something like harassing females comes out and says, you know, I've all along I've been female. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's still harassing, even if he's a female. Yeah, but we would look at it differently because now we'd be more sensitive to him because he's got, he's got all these, this gender confusion and stuff going on. And so, you know, know. It, it, is, it is much more black and white than, it, than we want to make it out to be. I just believe that. And my listeners can argue or not argue with that. He says, and parents, the doc's advice is to squelch those normal human feelings, joy at the birth of a son or daughter and dismantle those normal human expectations. So don't have the joy. Um, after all, she says, she says, after all, who says an anatomical boy is better off if he actually identifies as a boy? Question mark. Parents should envision a generic baby and take a deep dive into the world of gender-neutral parenting because Nahada and her colleagues recommend that all children are raised under gender-neutral as possible, or as gender-neutral as possible. Okay? And she concludes the article by saying, the, the author of the article, not the uh, author of the paper, she says, want some better advice? 
Find a new pediatrician. <laughs> who says that? <laughs> the, the woman who wrote the article <laughs> for The Federalist. All right. I mean, That's pretty funny. you can be sensitive to these issues without trying to change, the t- suck the joy out of what almost every parent ever has experienced, which is whether you want to know ahead of time through the genetic testing that we have now or ultrasound or we're going to wait and have find out at the birth, it is a life-changing moment when you find out you're having a boy or when you find out you're having a girl. To deny that is to deny reality for most people, okay? So the, so the issue is if somebody says we shouldn't, you know, you, you know, there's two words in the English language we don't say enough. You know what they are? No. So what? <laughs> Did you make that one up? No. <laughs> I, I stole that from radio talk show hosts I listen to all the time. <laughs> but it's right. He's right. All right. Sometimes you have to say, okay, I understand it, but so what? And I just feel very passionate about the fact that that our world is, is crazy enough as it is. All right. And there are people that 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 have different feelings about things. And I understand that. But th- they're asking people who have feelings different from them to change their feelings to accommodate them. Why can't sometimes those people say, yeah, we're different from the majority. We'll accommodate the majority. Why are we putting stuff in, in, in pediatric journals or scientific journals where we're confusing science with whatever it is? Rhetorical question. Any answers? No, I mean, I, I don't know that we have enough time today. I think it's a bigger, bigger conversation. All right, I'm going to bring you back to this. Yeah, I, I, have, I have things to say that are much more general. I don't go towards the scientific perspective very much, you know. Well, I know you, you, you always want to sort of smooth things. I'm just talking about the specific author. I mean, you know. I think it's a very interesting time that we're living in. And I think it's <sighs> it's very... I think a lot of things that we have always relied upon are being dismantled and and shaken. And I think that that can feel very threatening. Um, but I tend to look at things by trying to like be in the moment and be open and listen to perspectives. And yeah, I mean, thinking about thinking about a world where we don't announce boy or girl is like, whoa, that feels pretty, pretty shaking. But um, I, I find it to be a very interesting concept. Well, that's why you are the best co-host for Dr. <laughs> Stu's podcast Aww. in twenty in, 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 in December of 2017. You baffled <laughs> me a little on this one. <laughs> no, well, you know, it's just one of those things where I, I couldn't help but uh, when I read stuff like this in the in science, in the, you, know, you know, I get these feeds, I get Google mm-hmm. searches for things, and mm-hmm. and I look them up and I look at the headlines and I read this and I just thought, you know, uh, this is something I have to discuss with my friend Bliss because sure. I mean, it's you do see things differently than I yeah. do. I'm much more black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, much more Neanderthal, some people would say, but that's okay. <laughs> Happy to be there. Anyway, I hope that people listening today, Thanks, uh, maybe we'll get some comments on that. Maybe we'll get some unfriending. We never, we never know. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know what you think. We, we yeah. really want to hear it. And askdrstew at gmail.com. And if we get, an, uh, get enough good responses, we'll, we'll read them on the next podcast. So anyway, this has been Podcast 122. And uh, we really appreciate you listening. Uh, Find us on Facebook. Find us on iTunes. Share us with your friends. Give us five stars. Again, this is Dr. Stuart Fishbein with Bliss Young. Uh, And we find you at? Uh, Birthingbliss.com. Birthingbliss.com. One of these days I'll remember that. Uh, Again, thanks for listening again. And I think it's probably still going to be pre-Christmas. So Merry Christmas to all my... Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. 
and we'll see you uh, in 2018. Mm -hmm.